Good afternoon and welcome to the news portion of Midday Magazine for this Tuesday, November 8th. I'm Julie Hersey. Petersburg School Board will have its regular meeting at 6 o'clock tonight in the Middle and High School Library. KFSK will not broadcast the meeting live because it conflicts with election night coverage, but we will post a recording on our website at kfsk.org. Early in the meeting, the Warmack readers will give a student presentation. Vicky Shrestia from the district's accounting firm will present the 2022 audit. The board will be able to ask questions, and during new business, the board can accept or reject that audit. Superintendent Clute Painter will give her update, including on vaping in the schools and on how things went with the emergency drill. Principal Heather Kahn will give her update on the elementary school, and that will include attendance, enrollment, and the recent literacy night event. Principal Ambler Moss will give his update on the middle and high schools, and he will discuss the recent in-service day for staff as well as areas of growth he's noticed. There will also be reports on activities and maintenance. There will be a second reading of a board policy update about how money and receipts are handled. In new business, the board will hear about grants the school has been offered and choose whether to accept them. Three board members recently returned from a conference of the Alaska Association of School Boards, and they will talk about their experiences. And the board will also discuss the current draft of the school district's strategic plan and mission. The board can then accept or reject the draft. Again, the school board will meet tonight at 6 o'clock in the Middle and High School Library, and a recording of the meeting will later be posted on kfsk.org. And you can stay tuned for Campus Connection. It's a call-in program with school officials coming up right after Midday Magazine. Our phone number here for call-in, 907-772-3808. The Friends of the National Rifle Association hosted a dinner and auction this past Saturday. The annual event supports the Devil's Thumb Shooters, a youth shotgun program here in Petersburg. KFSK's Avery Herman Sakamoto caught up with organizers Kelly Slavin and Larry O'Rear before the event. Hi, I'm Kelly Slavin. Larry O'Rear. This is our sixth banquet, except for the one year in COVID. As uh, we raise money for the Friends of the NRA, and then we put in for grants for our kids' shooting team, and we get money back for that. For the Devils Club shooters? Right. And if you can see, we've got $106,000 back since 2015. I'm the head coach of the Devil Slum Shooters, and uh, we started this and with the kids, and it's just gotten bigger and bigger. And uh, Kelly just got started last year, and with Kelly, it's gotten a lot better because she she likes to go out and talk to people. I like to work with the kids. <laughs> the Devil Slum Shooters team is a pretty amazing group of kids that you know from the first practice to the last practice of the season you can see a huge change in their attitudes and their gun safety uh their shooting um so this the friends of the nra banquet it's probably one of the most important things for our for our club for our team um it really helps keep the cuts down for the members that want to join how long is the season we do like a 10 to 12 week in the fall and then usually 14 to 18 weeks, twice a week in the spring. And how did you all do at the tournament recently in Juneau? We did really well. We came in third out of 10 teams that were there. 
Uh, there's a lot of hard shooting, but we came in real well. And our younger kids always shoot well. The older kids shot really well, but there's, the competition's harder. Took 17 kids to Juno, and how many kids? 60. 63 kids were there total. We had 17 from Petersburg. Yeah, so we represented Petersburg very well. Thanks for everybody that's purchased a ticket to the NRA banquet. We appreciate you and all the businesses and personal people that made all the donations, silent and live. Couldn't do it without you. We get a lot of support from the, the town, and that's what keeps it going. It's, uh, shooting's not really cheap. We, you know, we got to shoot you know, a lot of shells and stuff, and travel costs a lot. And we need all the support, and we, we get it with our town. So. That was Larry O'Rear and Kelly Slavin speaking with KFSK's Avery Herman Sakamoto about the Friends of the NRA dinner and auction. Although wild salmon remains one of Alaska's most lucrative seafood industries, it's also one of the state's most vulnerable as climate change and population growth increase pressure on the world's oceans. As it looks more and more likely that demand will eventually outstrip the productivity of salmon and other wild seafood stocks, Researchers have turned to another method for producing protein from fish by culturing it in a lab. Tosh Kimmel recently traveled to California to taste some of the world's first lab-produced salmon and sent back this report. It's a typical overcast morning in San Francisco's Dog Patch neighborhood when I arrive at the headquarters of biotech company WildType. In a city known for tech, WildType isn't an anomaly. But in the world of sustainable seafood, they're making waves. Hi. Hey. Hey, how you doing? Hi. I'm Dalton. Nice to meet you. Inside the Wild Type offices, a group of young scientists mills around in sneakers and graphic tees obscured by white lab coats. Dalton Thomas, the company's head of food service sales, seats me at a kitchen bar. Behind it, an in-house sushi chef prepares me a plate of their product before it hits the U.S. market. Lab-grown salmon. So that's it. Oh, my gosh. It's pretty wild. It's a square block of marbled pink flesh, almost indistinguishable from traditional salmon, except this fish has never touched the ocean. So we have the nigiri version of the wild-type salmon. It's already brushed with soy sauce, so it's just ready to eat. Wild-type's fish is intended to be enjoyed raw, a decision made in part because of the sheer size and profitability of the sushi industry, but also because, as Thomas explains, cell-cultured salmon is simply not as appetizing when cooked. It does taste like fish, which is weird. It's not weird because it it's is. fish. It's fish. Yeah. While lab-grown salmon may seem futuristic, the technology and the product are already here, on my plate. But is it really fish? The basic idea is we cultivate real salmon cells, and we combine those with a plant-based scaffold or a sort of a three-dimensional matrix to help create, you know, like a really nice appearance and taste and texture. That's Justin Kolbeck, co-founder and CEO of the company. The super cool thing is we've actually been able to replicate, you know, fat and this sort of connective tissue that, you know, that, that white stuff when you're biting into a piece of raw salmon that kind of gets stuck between your teeth and then the fatty parts uh, without having to use any, any genetic engineering. To make this product, technicians harvest stem cells from a wild salmon. Then, in the same way a baker might feed a sourdough starter, they feed the cells with different proteins, amino acids, salts, and sugars. The scaffold, as Colbeck calls it, works like a 3D ladder made of different plant cells. The fish cells mesh with the scaffold, which then directs the cells to grow into fat or tissue, giving the salmon its texture and shape. 
But Wild Types creators say their mission goes beyond the novelty of growing meat in a lab. If you look at the long runs, uh, the, the long run trends, returning stocks of Pacific salmon in general along the Pacific coast have been declining pretty substantially over the last 40, 50 years. The FAO predicts we're going to need something like 30 million more tons of seafood to satisfy demand by the end of this decade. Colbeck says the company's aim is only to supplement the existing seafood industry, not supplant it. The company has even gone so far as to invest in conservation efforts around one of the world's biggest sockeye salmon fisheries in Bristol Bay, Alaska. I I don't think it is a solution as much as a diversion. Eric Jordan is a multi-generational commercial fisherman. For most of his life, he's made a living trolling for wild salmon in the waters of southeast Alaska. He says he doesn't believe lab-grown salmon poses a threat to his livelihood, but he does have other concerns. I catch these creatures that are the most wonderful food on earth. I can't imagine this lab-produced flesh is going to taste anything like wild Alaska salmon. So I'm not threatened by that. I am concerned about existential climate change threat and trawl bycatch. Alaska is one of the biggest producers of wild-caught salmon in the world. But in recent years, the state has struggled with the environmental stressors of a warming planet. Salmon runs virtually disappeared from western Alaska's largest river systems in the last couple of years. And now the famous Bering Sea crab harvest has crashed, too. Even so, Jordan feels a seafood alternative might be taking resources away from the conservation efforts. There's a lot of places you can invest money to protect wild salmon without investing it in producing an alternative to eat. But momentum is growing for cell-cultured foods. David Kaplan, a professor of biomedical engineering at Tufts, says wild type is far from alone. In the U.S., there is an incredible number and growing number of companies out there trying to grow just about any food you might want to eat or have eaten. Kaplan runs the university's lab studies in tissue engineering. In his view, the work has become essential. There is there's absolutely no way we can meet the protein needs and the meat needs that are is growing around the world. Um, consumers want meat, they like meat, and that's not going to go away. The Food and Drug Administration has yet to approve any cell-cultured meat for consumption in the U.S. However, approval is expected within the next year. And Wild Types Colbeck is banking on the future, hoping to one day transition his cell-cultured salmon from a niche market to something more universal. We haven't scaled this up to the point where we can make this product super cheaply yet. And it would be amazing if we could make one of nature's healthiest foods so accessible that it would be as you know cheap and available as like a Big Mac. That is the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. While we may not be seeing the golden arches carrying a lab-grown McFish anytime soon, there's no doubt that the landscape of the seafood industry is changing. And cell-cultured salmon will be making its way to the market sooner than later. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Tosh Kimmel. Searchers recovered the body of an overdue hiker from Sitka's Mount Verstovia Friday evening. 76-year-old Mike Motti was a veteran of Sitka's Mountain Rescue Team who regularly climbed above treeline to a knoll above Sitka, known locally as Picnic Rock, to celebrate his birthday. Troopers were notified around 5 o'clock in the evening that Motti was overdue from his annual trek up the mountain. A ground team was deployed, as was a helicopter, from Air Station Sitka. Searchers found Motti's body about an hour later beside the trail just below Picnic Rock where he had apparently died of natural causes. 
Mahdi was a fixture in emergency medical services in the region. Over his career, he helped organize and lead an emergency medevac department for the Southeast Alaska Regional Health Consortium prior to the advent of commercial medevac services. He was a wilderness medical associates instructor who taught many wilderness EMT courses for a variety of first response agencies. A former colleague for many years on Sitka Search and Rescue, Don Cluding remembers that Mahdi had an understated approach to training. On Cluding's very first day on the team, Mahdi harnessed him to ropes and sent him down a 100-foot cliff. You know, my knees were shaking, and I'm sure as I went over the edge, I had never repelled before. I'd never been lowered over a, a rock face before or anything. And, and here I am being introduced to this gentleman that I had never met before. And, you know, he's in charge, and he's tied this rope off to a tree. And they're, they're talking about, yeah, they're just going to lower me over this edge and, and down to the bottom. Cluding would eventually become captain of Sitka Search and Rescue and serve alongside Mahdi for 29 years. Mahdi joined the organization in March of 1983 and was still an active volunteer when he died. In fact, current Sitka Search and Rescue captain Matt Hunter said Mahdi was the team's, quote, most active member, working as search dog handler, medic, and most recently leading the incident management team. Don Cluding doesn't know how many lives Mahdi can be credited with saving but he believes the way his life ended will resonate with the people who are dedicated to this line of work. How fitting is this that he gets his last helicopter ride? And it's a beautiful night, the moon's out, and he died with his back against a tree looking at the most beautiful view ever. Memorial services for Mike Motti are pending. Southeast Alaska's Regional Native Corporation plans to distribute $15.4 million to its shareholders and that will be tomorrow. Sea Alaska has approximately 23,000 shareholders who are Clinkett, Haida, and Simshin people living in southeast Alaska and elsewhere. The for-profit corporation is based in Juneau. The amount of dividend per shareholder ranges from $374 to $695 per 100 shares and depends on the class of shareholder. About half of Sea Alaska's payout comes from operations income. The other half comes from natural resource revenue sharing funds with the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act and a shareholder permanent fund. While the ANCSA funds are more volatile, the shareholder permanent fund has seen steady earnings in recent years. The corporation's operations have seen increased profits the last seven years. In a press release, Sea Alaska CEO Anthony Malott said the corporation's dividends remain solid despite the economic volatility seen across the globe. The fall dividend brings the year's total payout to shareholders to $36.7 million. $21.3 million was paid out in April.